Oh, Father, what a great thing it is to recognize that uh, there is no stain of sin so deep or so dark that it cannot be washed bright and clean by your precious blood of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you for these great truths that we've just sung about and for our great heavenly position in Christ, those who are born again and the redeemed ones and covered with your blood and have been to the cross. Father, today as we tackle a a very serious topic, would you just give a special grace to the listeners? Father, would you help us to take to heart these important matters? Father, may your church be alive and vibrant and strong, and, and may we have a discernment and a wisdom to know how to respond appropriately to the issues of the day. May we respond like Christ. May we respond with a a biblical mindset. Father, take this time and use it well within us. Give us ears to hear. Uh, Give us uh, willing hearts to surrender to you today and and a a willingness to let your word shape us and mold us. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. It was uh, 40 years ago this past week that the infamous Roe v. Wade Supreme United States Supreme Court decision was made, uh, thereby allowing and empowering uh, those that would to legalize and to participate in the active role of removing unborn babies from their mommies. The term is abortion. We call it murder. It's a very serious and heinous thing. For these 40 years... It's as though we've been wandering in a desert of ah and immorality in America. Do you know that the number 40 is significant in the Bible? I was thinking about that as I pondered the reality of four decades of millions of unborn babies being taken, lives being snuffed out. Forty years in this desert of pro-death in our country. It's mind-boggling. In the Bible, when you think about 40 years, it's, it's almost always, and you have to be careful a little bit with what we would call numerology, but numbers are significant in the Bible uh, at different times and used in different ways. Um, but the number 40, uh, think about it, it was used at the time of God's great flood when Noah built the ark. And when the fountains of the deep broke open and the skies opened and the universal flood took place. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. 40 in the Bible is almost always attached to a time of waiting, a time of trial, and a time of testing. It sometimes uh, includes the idea of a time of perseverance. It's almost never associated with a time of ease or relaxation or even necessarily an overt or obvious blessing. It's a time of difficulty, a time when God is doing something in preparation for that which is to come. You think about the fact that our Lord Jesus, for example, when he went in the wilderness and was tested in his humanity by the devil, he fasted and prayed for 40 days and 40 nights and he was Weak, humanly speaking, and yet through the scripture resisted the temptations of the devil, providing a model for us. 
You think about Moses, for example. His life neatly breaks down into three segments of 40. 40 years in Pharaoh's courts, being educated, being raised up, uh, becoming a great leader politically and militarily. And then that day he struck down the Egyptian and uh, murdered him. He ran off to the desert of Midian for 40 years. And there God did a number of things in his life, preparing him then for 40 years of leading his people, which wasn't originally supposed to be 40 years. It was about an 11-day journey from downtown Egypt to up to the Canaan land for the children of Israel And yet, because of their disobedience, you can read this story in Numbers chapter 14 and 15. It reads well. It's quite a story of their their disappointment with God, their disbelief, their lack of faith, even to the point where they wanted to murder God's given spiritual leaders in their life. They wanted to stone them, raise up new leaders that would turn and lead them back to the old ways, to the old place, go back to Egypt And not enter in and persevere to what God had for them. Because of their disobedience, God said, it wasn't the babies that were going to die. God said that this whole generation, 20 and older, would die off in the desert. It would be the young people who would be able to enter the promised land. A time of trial and a time of testing. We've been in a desert for 40 years of heinous, horrible reality. It's difficult for us to comprehend, isn't it? Because... In so many ways, this particular aspect of our culture is really out of sight. We understand it, we know it, but it's difficult to sometimes realize what it means that in 40 years, the lives of 55 million Americans have been snuffed out. 55 million in 40 years. To put that in perspective, it would be like going home and turning on your laptop or your television and seeing that an earthquake has taken place in the entire state of New York and the entire state of California while we were in church today fell off the edges of the United States and every person in New York and California were killed today. That's 55 million people, essentially. Another way of thinking about it, if you've ever driven across I-70 or I-80 going across the Midwest... Let's throw Florida in because we got to go there, don't we? Florida, Illinois, Pennsylvania, and Ohio take those four states, obliterate every living person inside those states, and that's what's happened in the last 40 years because of Roe v. Wade. It's mind-boggling. It makes the heinous, murderous atrocities of Hitler look like child's play. 6.5 million or so versus 55 million. And yet there's some good news. Do you know that? Do you know that in the last couple years there has been more active legislation passed to begin to restrict the behavior and activities of abortion clinics? That states are defunding Planned Parenthood? There are good things happening, almost all of it, because and arriving out of a whole new world that's given to us by ultrasound. In fact, let's just stop for a minute and turn our attention to the screens. It's, it's videos like this that are making a great deal of difference. Watch. Isn't that wonderful? It's because of uh, media forms like that that the hearts and minds of young women contemplating abortion are turning. 
And um, we praise God for that. Those of us with a biblical worldview, we sometimes have a hard time even wondering and imagining what is it uh, that has brought us to this point, and yet it is a great reality in our world. But the news is not all good, as you well know. In the past five years, the majority political power holders in the U.S., led by our Oval Office, have never been more determined to force their agenda of death upon the public. More of the average Americans' taxpayer dollars than ever are funding abortions and health care provisions that include paying for abortive birth control measures are being forced with harsh, strong-arm tactics upon conscientious objectors. The highest offices in our land have never been more vocal or determined to ensure that the Holocaust of abortion continues to be the norm in America. Just last year, in fact, even though there are reports of good things happening, even organizations starting up, assisting with the goal end of having those who work in abortion clinics find a way out of that industry. And last year, some 40 abortion clinics employees left the business. Uh, States, as I referenced, are defunding Planned Parenthood. They're making it much more difficult for abortuaries to function. And yet, just last year, there was still right at a million abortions in the United States. There are pockets of population area in the United States where the statistics are overwhelming. For example, in New York City, they say that 40% of all pregnancies end in death. Among the African-American community, it's, it's even more overwhelming. In New York City, nearly 60% of African-American women who are pregnant will end and terminate the life of the child through abortion. Statistically, they say that in the New York City public schools, girls between the ages of 15 and 17 will conceive in this, this year, this school year, over 7,000 pregnancies, of which two-thirds will be ended in abortion which is provided with great ease in the hallways of their school, provided by the government. I recognize that there are overwhelming social issues to deal with, and I recognize that it is overwhelming to think of being in charge of a school system where you know in your city that school year 7,000 girls will become impregnated. But what is it in the mind of a leader that would say, let's just snuff out the lives of the baby, that's how we'll deal with it? I recognize today that I stand before a largely, if not entirely, sympathetic audience that, at a very high level, understands the sanctity of human life. Yet I believe that our churches and our pulpits should not be passive or silent concerning this horrible reality. And so it is that, at the least, we address this subject publicly and biblically from our pulpit I choose to do it the last Sunday in January just to help keep my calendar straight. And yet it seems that um, more needs to happen. It's been 40 years that we've been wandering in the desert. People of moral conviction and, and those with a biblical worldview on this topic and those who understand that the video so clearly emphasized that God is the giver of life. We're being marginalized, we're being mocked, we're being demonized. So this morning, I'd like to deal with this topic in both a biblical and practical manner, 
and I would like to touch on three areas that I've been thinking upon, and I trust they will be helpful. I think that, first of all, there is a a social frustration, and I'd like to deal with uh, this topic from the perspective of of a Bible-believing Christian, and how do we interface and interact politically with this thing? So number one, politically, how do we deal with this? How do we think about it? Secondly, if we're going to make a difference at some level, we've got to engage in the church our parents, and we've got to raise up a generation of young people who understand that God is, is the Lord of all life. And that life is sacred. And so those of you that have under your influence as parents or grandparents, uh, formative age children, I want to challenge you this morning that there are some, some major priorities that, that are essential in our Christian homes. And so secondly, I'd like to look at this from the angle of parenting. And then thirdly, I am certainly cognizant of the reality of the consequences of sinful decisions And that in an audience like this, there are those who perhaps the ache of the impact of sinful choices of the past or in immaturity never goes away. And I would like to deal with this at the personal level, politically, parentally and personally. I trust you'll find it practical and helpful for each point. uh, We have a point title and then a category and a question. Point number one is social frustration, social frustration, and that is politics and the Christian. How do we deal with this, with our government, with the antagonizing and proactive efforts on the part of the powers of our lands to promote death, to even stand publicly and and to proclaim that they are pro-death and they want it available for their children and they want their daughters to be able to have an abortion if needed? And so my question at this point is, what do we do about this? As Americans, as part of a republic where we, the people, are involved in the political process, what is the Christian's responsibility to interface with their government? And namely, and for the first time in my adult ministry, I say this publicly, I want to raise the question about... Civil disobedience. And so my question specifically on this point is, at what point is civil disobedience appropriate for the Bible-believing Christian in America? I have to tell you that I think that we can talk forever about this topic. And we can say, oh, what a disgusting shame. What if you're on your front porch one afternoon and guys in black suits pull up in some kind of an SUV... Across the street, the neighbor's children are playing with their Tonka trucks in the sandbox and they get out and they have machine guns and they mow them down and they get back in their vehicle and they go away and the children are left there slaughtered and bloody and broken on the front lawn. We wouldn't stand for it. And yet, this atrocity takes place day after day after day after day in the bloody butcher shops of abortuaries. And it's easy for us to just talk or say, what a shame, or at the least pray for God to intervene, which is, of course, vitally important and foundational. But I have to tell you that it seems to me that there is a point in time where, re- where some kind of action is demanded of God-fearing Christians. 
or we cease to be principled biblical people. In some level, are we just an accomplice if we stand by and do nothing? I have to tell you that I recognize this is a difficult subject. And so on this point, we're not going to spend a lot of time. And in some ways, I am more raising the question than answering the question. But it just occurs to me that in our social frustration, and in our inner interfacing with the political world, at what point is civil disobedience appropriate for the Christian in America? Some of you guys are hoping to find an answer to how to react about giving up 30-shot magazines in this message, and that's not going to happen. I don't have one, but I'm trying to think about at what point do we do what? It's helpful for me to remind myself that God's people through the centuries have often, actually more often than not, lived under ungodly, unsympathetic leaders even antagonistic and persecuting leaders. This is not a new issue for God's people to have to figure out how to live underneath a political system that is anti-God and that is pro-death. As Americans, we are very accustomed to taking our freedoms and our rights of freedoms for granted, and we're recognizing that there is a whole new wave of strong-arm tactics, and we are being limited in constitutional freedom, clearly, Inarguably. However, as we react, we need to be sure to react biblically. We need to react wisely and in a Christ-like manner. It occurs to me that we have some biblical models. And I thought it would be valuable as we at least ask this question, okay, at what point is there a line that I then, I disobey my government I'm still thinking about the New Testament believer and at what point is, if ever, is a violent response called for? You say, man, Pastor Van's really getting radical this morning. I haven't concluded that other than I think that self-defense is certainly some kind of a framework of a righteous response. We have lots of New Testament teaching on turning the other cheek, on not bringing a vengeance upon our enemies, letting God bring about His perfect justice in His time. And so I'm continuing to think and meditate and read on these things, and in some ways I'm even amazed that here we are at the threshold of a time when God's church in America is going to have to decide at what limits will they live? What behaviors will we involve ourselves within and what will we not? It appears to me that we are at the threshold of a time of season of change where our government does not look favorably upon the church. It does not look favorably upon Bible-believing Christians. In fact, we are demonized and marginalized. So let's begin with just a brief Bible study and let's look at some people who entered into civil disobedience and were blessed by God for it. Let's at least do that much for a few minutes. And maybe that's food for thought for some of you to read. Uh, People like Francis Schaeffer and others who've done some thinking in this area, Samuel Rutherford, and, um, and study our Bibles that we be relevant, pertinent, wise, godly Christians 
Exodus chapter 1 is where we are momentarily. Will you turn there? And we have these two wonderful ladies. Do you remember their names? Shipra and Pua. Shipra and Pua. Remember the Egyptian midwives? This is a familiar story. This is the beginning of Moses' life uh, when he is... Uh, born in captivity in Egypt by Israelite parents. And this is right before he's born. And he, uh, as a result of the edict and the mandate from the Pharaoh to exterminate baby boys and uh, to, to, uh, to do this genocidal act of killing all the baby boys, uh, Moses will be put in a basket Hidden in the reeds down by the river, he will be discovered by Pharaoh's daughter and God in his sovereign plan, guiding and directing Moses and preparing and equipping in a unique and special way, will raise up a leader, an Israelite leader, to lead his people, but he's going to train him in the very courts of Pharaoh. Listen, you cannot confuse or confound God. He even takes the enemies and he works them to his own ends. Right before that, we run into Shipra and Pua, they're wonderful names, I really think that some of you who are having baby girls should use these names. They are worthy. They are wonderful women and they are named in scripture so that we will know them by name when we get to heaven perhaps. Verse 15, chapter 1, let's just jump right in the middle of it. The Israelite midwives responding then to the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. You see why you ought to name your daughters after them? So the king of Egypt called the midwives and he says, now listen, their very lives are on the line. You recognize that, right? And he says, why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes into them. So God, listen, God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. There's a question for your ethics class. Did the midwives lie to Pharaoh and was it right for them to lie? Well, I don't think they lied. I think they told the truth. I think they just didn't say why they were always late getting to the the birthing mothers. And I also think that at this time, there's biblical evidence to support the idea that the Israelite women were having children very easily, that God was blessing them and growing their families. And there was great ease with having children. And the babies did come quickly. And the midwives knew it. And so when they got the call and the shout, they just look at their clock and they just took their sweet time knowing that by the time they got there, the baby would be born. And they would not be responsible at the birthing stool to drop that baby boy down onto the stone floor, killing it. Oops. They refused to do it. That's civil disobedience, right? That's civil disobedience, and it's looking the king in the face and saying, this is why, and we're not doing it. They had bold disregard for the mandate to take life. Part of the answer of when believers in the Lord Christ should enter into civil civil disobedience is when the government is mandating the unjust taking of life. We say no. We say no. Well, how about Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah? Remember these guys? Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah? 
three of your favorite and my favorite guys in the Bible. It's Daniel chapter 3. Why don't we turn there quickly? Psalms, Proverbs, and on through Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. There it is. Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. We have here the great story where King Nebuchadnezzar was setting up a great statue of himself. He was promoting idolatrous worship and emperor worship. And these three young men who were Hebrew young men out of Israel in captivity and in exile find themselves in a great gathering. You know the story. The instruments are supposed to break out with this great national anthem and they're supposed to, everyone is supposed to bow down out on the plain of Dura. And these three guys have refused to do it. They're brought before the king. Let your eyes fall to verse 15 of chapter 3 of Daniel. And the king says, Now if you are ready when you hear the sound of all these instruments, that then you will worship and fall down before the image I have made. It will be well and good for you. But if you do not worship, the middle of verse 15, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God, little G, who will deliver you out of my hands? He's puffed up with his own arrogance and his power. He's mandating the death penalty for somebody who doesn't follow his edict and bow down and worship him and kiss the ring. And look what these guys say, they're great. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were their pagan uh, Babylonian names that were given to them. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were their Hebrew names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we need not to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. In other words, who do you think you are to mess with our God? You think you're God with little G's and you can tamper with us? Our God, if he chooses, will deliver us. But look how they go on. Look at the great conviction of these young men. Verse 18, but if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. You cannot make me bow down to a pagan god. You will have to kill me first. That's what they're saying. And he said, I will indeed accommodate that. We know the end of the story and that God used this as a great example to embolden and encourage us to be men and women of conviction and so they, made a, they had fear, fearless disregard for the mandate of idolatrous worship. That's another time that we will rebel and disobey civilly. We will boldly disregard the mandate to take life. We will fearlessly disregard the mandate for idolatrous worship. We go on and with chapter 6 we could read and we'll skip it. But Daniel is a third illustration. Daniel chapter 6 verse 10 and on. He had fearless disregard for the mandate limiting the freedom of worship and speech. Remember the edict there. The king said no one can pray. Pass the law. Daniel runs home the day the edict is made public. Opens up his shutters and openly and publicly bows down and prays. They know it's not to the king. It ends up in the lion's den, one of the greatest stories of all in the Bible. What a powerful deliverance God gave. But you have to know that Daniel thought he was going to die when they put him in the lion's den. He did not know that God was going to deliver him. And he wouldn't capitulate. He rebelled in an appropriate manner. You will not limit my freedom to worship God. 
When we go to our New Testament, we have a couple of examples. And as I said, this is a huge topic and it's very interesting and and maybe not easy. I just wanted to glimpse at a couple of biblical models, the Israelite midwives, Hanani, Mishael, Azariah, Daniel. How about Peter and John in Acts chapter 4? You don't have to turn there either. Acts chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. They were told they had just healed a man. They healed a man who was lame. It caused a, a ruckus because the gospel was being preached. The political powers of the day and the religious leaders of the day came to shut them down. They look at them and they say, Who are we? Are we going to serve man or are we going to serve God? We're going to serve God. There's nothing less than civil disobedience and talk back that they gave these men. And they had a fearless disregard for the mandate restricting the freedom of speech and the preaching of the name of Jesus Christ. They kept doing it even though it would potentially cost them their lives and ultimately it did. The Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, is another example repeatedly throughout the book of Acts as he went from city to city and where they followed him around and they forbade him, forbid and forbade him from preaching the gospel. He did it anyway at the cost of getting bricks and stones and, and rocks thrown at him and beaten down and drug out, dragged out onto the trash heap of the, outside the city, left for dead repeatedly. I wonder what would happen this morning. Say, oh, you're going to church this morning. You go to church. You go to church this morning and I catch you. This afternoon I'm going to throw you in a, in a fiery furnace. I'm going to burn you to death. Oh, you're going to worship Jesus and you're going to say the name of Jesus publicly today? You cannot say the name of Jesus. You can only say the name of the king. Say the name of Jesus. I'm going to throw you in a den of lions. Capital punishment. How many of us would have come to church today? How many of us would have? Thanks for your hand. That's great. I like that. I like to believe I would be here too. I like to believe I would be here too. Sometimes I imagine myself to be bolder than I am. By God's grace, we'll have the wisdom to know how to respond and to react in times of oppression, in times where laws are no longer based, where rules are no longer based on God's law. And when rules become based on the law of man, it complicates and confounds everything. And we must never violate God's law for man's law. Well, there's some questions. I don't know if I provide too many answers there, but there's a few times when we would rebel socially. I am raising the point, however, that when it involves the lives of other people and murder, it seems at some point there has to be a reaction that is physical. And I'm seeking to know and have the courage to know what to do. This year, more than any other year, I was convicted in my conscience that I didn't have on my calendar and give of my precious time to go down to D.C. to march. I don't know if it accomplishes anything. The news certainly missed it. Thirty people gathered for any other ridiculous cause would have made more of a splash than hundreds of thousands of people on the mall this week. But at the least, we have to get involved, don't we? Well, that's the Christian in politics. How about the Christian in his parenting? Number two, the next generation. Our social frustration makes us think about, what about the next generation? 
Our question here is, how do we as Christian parents shape in the minds of our children a biblical worldview so that they know this is not right or normal? You see, we have a whole new normal that's promoted to us by the highest people in our land. College professors, high school teachers, politicians, people who sit in the highest offices of our land promote this as this is right and this is good and this is necessary and this is normal. And Hollywood presents it in the, in the film footage and in cartoons that this is right and normal. And somehow in the middle of this crazy world, we've got to raise parents, we've got to raise children as parents to raise them to know that this isn't right. And we've got to raise children who know better than this. I want to suggest three priorities in our parenting, and I'm going to have to click them off. I would love to spend more time on each of these points, and perhaps in the future we will. But I'm suggesting this morning that if we're going to make a difference for the cause of life and stand against the culture of death, we have to raise children who understand the sanctity of human life. And to understand the sanctity of human life, it has to be a priority in all Christian homes to build their children on the foundation of creationism. Let me say it again. It has to be a priority in all Christian homes to raise children who understand that they were created by a loving God, that they were created in the image of God, and that evolution is a lie from the pit of hell, and that it does great damage. And in fact, we would not be 40 years in the desert of this crazy death culture if it weren't for Darwinianism, let me just read what I wrote down. At the heart of, this, of the destructive poison of evolution and Darwinianism is the animalization of humans obliterating from the conscience the reality of being created in the image of God. In other words, people would not snuff out the life of their children. It is an unnatural act. God did not put it in the conscience of a woman to have the capacity to kill her own children. God put it in the conscience of a woman to preserve life. And so it is the teaching of evolution to our children that has taught them that they are no more important than an animal and they are nothing other than a developed animal. And therefore, this life doesn't matter. That's not true. It's a lie. We are created in the image of God. Human life has a dignity and a sanctity that animal life does not have. It doesn't mean that we don't care about animal life, but in typical fashion of the God of this world, he has tipped the whole thing upside down and people get much more upset about killing unborn kittens or eagles than they do unborn baby humans. Go figure. It's totally upside down. I saw an image on a screen that I thought was good. I should have put it up. It's a, somebody uh, used photoshop and took a tree and they put the the baby from the womb inside the trunk of the tree and you could see it and they said let's call them trees and then we'll all work together to preserve life people care more about killing trees than they do unborn babies you can't make this stuff up but it's the reality of the unredeemed mind heart and soul and i want to tell you something you can teach your children to play soccer and you can teach them to Teach them to do their arithmetic and their spelling and know their vowel sounds. And you better teach them all that stuff. But over all of that, more important than that, is teaching them about creation and that God created the world. And that evolution is a farce and it is a fake and it is ridiculous. My cats killed a red-headed woodpecker the other day. 
I said my cats. I only like one of the two. <laughs> They're Johnny's cats, really, and Jonathan really likes cats, so I leave them alone. And one of these days, you might see a nice little fur collar on Janet's jacket or something. But... <laughs> so I go out of the garage, and there's a red-headed woodpecker in the driveway. I don't know if you know very much about red-headed woodpeckers, but they didn't maul this thing up very much, and it was really fascinating. And out of the beak of this wood, red-headed woodpecker, was, the tongue was five or six inches long. Did you know that a red-headed woodpecker has a tongue five or six inches long? Do you know that in the back of their skull, they actually have a spot that it winds up and, and coils up out of the way so that they don't have five inches dangling around, getting in the way of their feet and their wings, flying out there with the tongue hanging out? What's it for? Do you know that a red-headed woodpecker is a marvelous, marvelous example of the creative power of our Heavenly Father? How it all came together perfectly by His design, hitting the trunk of a, of a hardwood tree that's dying so hard that the force of it would easily, on any other bird, take its beak and run it out the back of its head, pushing its brains out the back. But the way it's designed, it can handle the shock, and then it opens up a hole, and then, and then the tongue, that tongue, actually on the very end of its tongue, do you know that it has little barbs? Like a fish hook in a way, or the, a, an arrow. And it snakes that tongue, and it can even curve, and it hits a beetle or a bug in the tree, and, and it zaps it, and it hooks it, and it brings it back, and it works the dead trees. It's fascinating. You're going to just make that stuff up? You're going to have the audacity to let a teacher look at your kid and say, it all just happened when there was a big explosion one day, boys and girls. <laughs> Stupid. Why is it acceptable to believe that? It's mind-boggling. I was sitting watching cartoons with my grandkids, and they, because I'm a pappy, and I didn't know what to do with them after about two and a half hours, I... <laughs> I let them control the remote and the most stupid dinosaur cartoon I've ever seen in my life comes on. I don't know what it is, on PBS or something. These dinosaurs that maybe they swim under the water, I'm not sure. Maybe that was another cartoon. Whatever happened to Roadrunner and Coyote? Come on. At least smash some people or something. I'm pro-life. And these dinosaurs talk, you know, and they're telling you in the story how billions of billions of years ago, and I wanted to throw my shoe at the TV, but it wasn't mine. And I was just thinking, are the kids getting this? Are they li- you know what? We're a fool if we think our kids watching hours of cartoons being taught billions and billions of years ago that that doesn't influence. Oh, man, I told you I wanted to spend some time on this, but... Uh, we got to go. You understand my point? If we're going to raise up a generation of people who understand that they were created in the image of God and that human life is sacred, then we had sure better well defy evolution and teach them how preciously and beautifully formed they were by a creator God. And that you're not stupid for believing it. The second priority... Is, is very significant as well. Number two, it needs to be a priority in every Christian home to boldly debunk the lies of feminism. 
to boldly debunk the lies of feminism. And what I'm namely after here is the elevation of the beauty and the sanctity of motherhood. So that our little girls understand that when they are pregnant and they have a baby, that they have a God-given sacred responsibility to protect that life and to nurture that life and to raise it up in the admonition of the Lord. And that that is a wonderful privilege. That you are not somehow spoiling your life by becoming a mother. You are fulfilling exactly the greatest reality that God has for you. Thirdly, in every Christian home, you better celebrate the sanctity of Christian marriage. And you need to know that our children are confused about marriage now. All of their Hollywood heroes, all of their sports heroes, what are they? They're engaged. That's their fiancé. That's the new word for we live together. You'd be amazed how often it finds its way to my office from people raised in Christian homes. Oh, this is my fiancé. What do you mean it's your fiancé? Well, yeah, we live together. Of all people in our culture who had better get it right, God's people better get it in the minds of their kids. Yes, how to kick a soccer ball. Yes, how to add up numbers. Then four plus four equals eight. Yes, how to do long division and multiplication and how to start a lawnmower. But you sure better be teaching them that someday you're going to be a daddy. Someday you're going to be a mommy. And you do this when you're married. And that it is marriage that is sacred. It is the marriage bed that is sacred. And that our young people are raised in such a way that we are fighting the good fight. And that with all of our strength and our might and our mind, that our boys and girls are growing up and our little girl brides are walking down and our young men standing here handsome at their marriage day are entering into their honeymoon as virgins. Because marriage, marriage is the number one deterrent to abortion. Marriage is the number one deterrent, and it was in the, back in the 50s and the 60s, post-World War II, when marriage, the sanctity of marriage was undermined, that it became acceptable in our culture for young men to propagate themselves anywhere that they could find somebody who would lie down with them, and they have multiple children by multiple women, and they don't care for any of them, and what's the poor girl to do the next time she goes to have an abortion? The statistics of unmarried women having abortion are astronomical and off the charts compared to married women having abortion. And I'm telling you that there is a direct relationship in our culture between the sanctity of marriage and the sanctity of human life. And you destroy one and you begin to destroy the other. Well, how do we do that? That's a good question. I'll have to save that for later. I've given you three priorities. I'm at least telling you what you need to know to do in the next generation. Three priorities. Build a life foundation on creationism. Boldly debunk the lies of feminism. Celebrate the sanctity and beauty of Christian marriage. We need to wind down and we need to end. Listen closely, would you please? There is a third point and a third question. It might be, for some of you, the most important point this morning. And I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're just a few minutes away from concluding with a time of meditation and reflection. And Ephesians chapter 2 puts in perspective some realities about our relationship with God through Jesus Christ that is the key to number three, our personal restoration. Our personal restoration. 
What about pardon for sin? The question is, Pastor Van, Pastor Van, I've done this. It's too late. I don't know at what level you process that, but I want to encourage you this morning to move forward and leave your sin and your bad decisions behind you. How do I put it behind me? Look at Ephesians chapter 2, and the first thing I want you to understand is the nature of sin and sinners. The nature of sin and sinners. Remember that sinners sin. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 1 of chapter 2. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you see that? He's writing to the Ephesian believers and said, Of course, when you were a sinner, you sinned, and you lived like a child of the darkness, and you lived like a child of wrath. That's the way all of us were. And so the first thing you need to do for restoration personally is you need to understand that sinners sin. And especially if you were involved in some kind of a death decision before you were saved, you need to recognize the fact that that's what unsaved people do. They make bad decisions outside of the will of God with great ease. Because they don't have the conviction of the word of God in their lives. It is also possible, though, that in naivety or selfish sinfulness or in immaturity, some of you did know the Lord and you entered into harmful decisions, stupid and foolish decisions. Maybe even some of you men were part of promoting it. Sinners sin, and sin is ugly. But the chapter doesn't stop there. Look what it says. But God, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were stupid sinners and doing dumb things, dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And it is by grace that you've been saved. The second thing you need to do is you need to revel in the richness of God's mercy and grace. Recognize that sinners sin. Embrace and revel in the grace, undeserved favor, and the mercy, the withheld judgment of a loving and kind God who wants to forgive you. But it doesn't stop there. Look what he goes on to say. It's by grace that you've been saved in verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus... So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. Did you get that? It is this, that God delights in taking dirty, rotten, foolish, dumb, selfish sinners who've done the dumbest things you can do. Who've recognized by his mercy and grace they can go to the cross and that the blood of Christ can cleanse them from all sin. And God then spiritually, when they enter into this salvation in Christ, seats us in the heavenlies in a big old lazy boy love seat with himself. Seated in the heavenlies with Christ. It doesn't stop there. It's to demonstrate the fact that 
His immeasurable mercy and grace is on display for all of eternity that he took somebody way down there and he put them up here in the chair of righteousness. And that brings honor and glory to God. And and that brings glory to Christ. Go figure. It's almost like, it's almost like we're supposed to sin back here, but that's not true. If you sinned, You become this marvelous trophy of God's grace and you will be on display the rest of your life. And so you need to come to the cross and you need to enter into this great forgiveness. You need to let the blood of Christ cleanse you. You need to take the word of God at face value and let the guilt be gone. You cannot undo the past. Yes, it's shameful. Yes, it's sinful. Yes, it was harmful. Yes, some of the residuals are are almost never going to go away this side of heaven. But by God's grace and mercy, he has seated me in the heavenlies next to himself. Amen? Amen. Have you been to the cross? Do you know what it is for the blood of Christ to cleanse you from all sin? Will you stop revisiting back there when you're seated in the heavenlies up here? How is it that we would be seated with Christ as a demonstration of his glory, mercy, and grace? And we're all hung up. Oh, I can't believe what I did back there. He can believe what we did back there, and that's why he went to the cross. Now, let it go. Let's bow in prayer. Father, would you please stir our hearts and challenge us to know how to respond appropriately as believers in the Lord Christ. I particularly pray, Lord, for those who on the inside are hurting, even recoiling after decades at their own sinfulness. And Father, would you help us to enter in to our righteous standing in Christ and to embrace it and to recognize that we're trophies of your grace, and that we all used to be dead, foolish, dumb sinners. Thank you for Christ coming and in his righteousness taking our sinfulness, substituting in for us at the cross so that his blood could cleanse us from all sin. Make these things real. Open our eyes, Father, as we meditate and think here today. Accomplish your purposes, we pray. Amen. I want us to just sing an old hymn quietly. The choir is going to come in and we're going to end with a, a song that maybe somebody needs this morning. We're going to sing an old gospel hymn about the blood of Christ. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath its flow. Do what? Lose all their filthy stains. Amen? Well, let's sing that. You just stay seated. As you sing, the choir's coming in. We're just going to sing the first stanza. And then as the choir begins to sing, would you bow your heads and just listen to the words? For some of you, today is the day that you need to put behind you the foolishness of sin. And you need to move forward into God's grace, either in salvation or in putting away the guilt of sinful choices of the past.